Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. This month, my audiobook narration of Dueling the Dragon, Adventures in Chinese Media and Education, will come out on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, pretty much wherever audiobooks are sold. It's about a five-hour read and it spans the ten years or so that I lived and worked in the country. Here are some excerpts. Introduction Looking back over these chronicles, I tingle with embarrassment sometimes at my naivety, overreactions, and missed opportunities. I even wonder what readers will infer about my psychological makeup at the time. A glutton for punishment, surely, a meeting at least one definition of insanity by repeating the same thing and expecting different results. But rather than revise this book with the benefit of hindsight, I favoured giving voice to my former self as he was then. After all, Dueling the Dragon has its origins in a series of emails written to friends overseas in which I was unfolding events more or less as they occurred. Nor have I seen a need to change anyone's name in these accounts. I have also retained most of the original expletives as they helped to encapsulate my emotional responses at the time. I shun legalism in language as well as in life, and I am rather of Shakespeare's view that there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. In any case, I trust readers will find the language less shocking than what it is responding to. I have witnessed universities complicit in honouring exam cheats, students sold into slavery while teachers pocket the proceeds, and farmers driven off their land by unscrupulous developers. My own direct experiences include false charges alleged by Beijing police and persecution at China's state media institutions, and I have not made any of this up. Yet from this nation of extremes, I also hope to offer some rays of light, including romantic encounters and moments of comedy, which brings me to the central theme of this book, reflected in both the title and the cover, that China is a nation of extreme contrasts, Though magical in all cultures, the dragon is generally regarded as a benevolent being in China and as a malevolent one in the West. In my experience, the Chinese dragon is fully both. Dueling the dragon is really five books in one, each covering a distinct period. The first, Dispatches from Chengdu, starts in 2005 with my early days as a teacher in the western province of Sichuan, followed by Laments from Lushan, a nearby city in the same province. My third teaching assignment is described in Chidings from Changping, a city near Beijing. The fourth and fifth books, Briefings from Beijing and Perspectives from Peking, respectively, centre around my experiences at Chinese state media giants China Radio International, beginning in 2007, and China's Central Television in 2015. It is perhaps too much to hope that my observations about China will be prescriptive, but at least I can offer the perspective of an outsider, and sometimes it takes an outsider to observe the obvious. In the end, if adventure stories contain both miracle and monster, friend and foe, then this book can justly claim to describe an adventure.
Dispatches from Chengdu, 1. The floral designs on the sleeping bags seem too pretty for military field equipment, but then again the soldiers learning to fold them were far too lovely to be fighting any wars. I was on the campus of the Chengdu College of Film and Broadcasting, where squadrons of raven-haired beauties clad in military camouflage were undergoing their two weeks of compulsory military training before starting their first year at university. Shy giggles, coy glances and simple phrases of English greeted my declaration that you're all doing very well, and I was transported by their smiles alone. Were these fair damsels ever sent into battle, the mesmerised enemy would lay down their arms and raise up flags of a very different kind. The girls here are dazzling, and I can imagine the creator, when he fashioned the eaves of this world, must have looked with a particularly tender and gracious eye on Chengdu, which has earned the reputation even among the Chinese for its captivating examples of womanhood. Speaking of Genesis, I am often charged with the sacred honour of assigning English names to students, for which I draw on Shakespeare, scripture, mythology and other great literature. It's fun being an object of curiosity here. Cries of hello welcome my daily walk across campus, usually followed by the pleasant harmony of giggles when I wave back with a greeting of my own. Some of the girls say I'm handsome, reminding me of a line from I think Mutiny on the Bounty, where the island women think the English sailors beautiful, no matter how oddly their features were arranged, or in the words of Shakespeare's Richard III, Upon my life, she finds, though I cannot, myself to be a marvellous proper man. But I've enjoyed hanging out with some of the lads too. One whom I have named James invited me to a party for the Mooncake Festival. It turned out to be a huge concert of theatre, music and dance. In response to their invitation that I should give a performance, I made up a solo Argentine tango dance which was enthusiastically received. The only words of English spoken during the evening were, Long live Chairman Mao. I find the ongoing reverence for Mao's memory hard to square with history, but if he had anything to do with putting first-year girls in military fatigues, I thank him. Later, James told me, My classmates very like you. I almost replied, I very like them too. I finally said something more grammatical befitting an English teacher, Looking back, though, I like my first impulse better. 19. I remember an episode from my school days in which I copied my neighbour's test answers, thinking him better informed than I was. Usually that was the case. He was known as the class SWAT. But on this occasion my trust was misplaced, for he had not prepared any better than I. The following week, the teacher, noticing we had the same wrong answers, wrote COPY on our papers. A number of other pairs of students had received the same comment. Well, I guess that sort of thing goes on among ten-year-olds. But among postgraduate students? It is one in the morning, and I am so stunned by what I have just seen in these final exam papers that I am unable to sleep. I was not overseeing the exam itself, so I don't know how they communicated with each other, but the patterns of identical incorrect answers, identical incorrect spellings, and identical answers to open-ended questions 
leave no doubt that cheating was rife. They even suggest connivance by the invigilating teacher. I was at first pleasantly surprised by the answers of one girl whose work during the semester had been especially uninspiring, but now I know she was leaning on a more accomplished student and wasn't even smart enough to disguise what she had been up to. And this from a group of students who complained I treated them like children. Turns out I credited them with more maturity than they deserve. I have assigned zero scores to the definite cheaters while giving the benefit of the doubt to the ones I merely suspect. Yet the university administration has instructed me to group the majority of percentage scores for this class in the 80s for the semester. I'm told by Chinese friends that cheating is rife in the Chinese education system, that students sometimes pay great sums to have exam answers fed to them via text messages or tiny earphones, and some will even appoint a substitute to sit for them under a false identity. My dearest friend Alex informs me he has turned down several lucrative offers to serve as an exam proxy. Even scholarships are won illicitly, he tells me, meaning that the people who really need them don't get them. Of course, all this means that candidates are leaving college to build careers on a foundation of sand. I heard the other day that multinational corporations in China find only 10% of the country's university graduates have English skills adequate to work for them. Having observed so many getting certification beyond their accomplishments, I am not surprised. Briefings from Beijing 8. I thought it was one of those routine inspections to check my registration when the police showed up at my door last night. But when one of them said they were taking me to the police station and advised me to cooperate, an icy dread began to creep into my heart. I told them I had to go back to work. No, they said. We have already talked to your boss. We need you to come with us. He showed me a photograph of one of my work colleagues, a woman from Singapore, who had begun a six-month internship at CRI a few weeks ago. Immediately, the whole nightmarish picture began to come into focus. She had come to my apartment two nights before, distraught that her boyfriend was on his way from Singapore, following her confession she had slept with another man. Me. Her boyfriend, she explained, believed she was a victim and wanted to get the Chinese police involved. She hadn't told him, crucially as it turned out, about the second night she spent at my place. As I crammed into the back seat of the police car next to two fat cops, I started to contemplate my future. I was in trouble. I seemed to be a suspect, and my employer was involved. What would happen? Would I lose my job? Would I be kicked out of the country? After walking with my minders into the police station, I was escorted to a room where yet more officers were waiting, all speaking Chinese, no one speaking to me. What was going on? My anxiety grew. After several minutes, I could wait no longer. What's this about? I said. Two of the cops spoke a little English. One of them showed me the photograph again. Do you know her? Yes, she's one of my work colleagues. She's charged you with rape. Oh my God. 24. Just one week to the opening of A Midsummer Night's Dream, where I will play Oberon 
in a bilingual production with Western and Chinese actors. It works beautifully to play opposite a Chinese-speaking Park, as so much of the play's comedy hinges on misunderstandings between the two. Both of my fellow orphans actors are also back for this, with Chris directing the show as well as playing Bottom Pyramus and Nick playing Francis Flute Thisbe. Chris is as fine an actor as any I've seen, and that includes productions of Shakespeare in the Park in New York City and the Royal Shakespeare Company. His antics for the death throes of Pyramus always have me weeping with laughter, no matter how many times I watch. In the words of another cast member, it never gets old. Our orphans producer Anna Grace is mounting this show too under the banner of Beijing International Theatre Experience, or Bite. Highly energetic and resourceful, she is a veritable force of nature in the theatre world. Back at CRI. I gather that Mr. Li Pei Chun greeted news of my revitalized acting career by blacking one of my eyes on a promotional poster pinned up there by a former colleague. This destructive impulse mirrors the very real occlusion of my left eye brought on at CRI by the working conditions he imposed. The radio station continues to suppress the spoken and written treasuries I created there, but at last. My voice is heard in Beijing. Twenty-eight. How's this for exemplary English? The economical prices of dishes are recommendable, or the traditional stores need to pursue after the product diversity if the want to survive. Sick, or noise is disorderly for one's ear to bear. These are among the sentences I am supposed to record for Chinese students trying to learn English by listening to CDs that accompany their English language textbooks. Here are some more. Appropriate frustration education is not bad. While on the train, we chatted, had jokes. The price of taking train is reasonable, but I can't bear the notorious condition. And. What did the theft done to the girl's bike? These literary gems are the output of Chinese teachers who fancy themselves adept in English and symptomatic of an education system replicating its own errors and far more interested in generating revenue than imparting academic excellence. Of course, I alter the texts as I read them. As does my dear friend and main voice partner Rebecca Parr, whom I affectionately call my voice wife. My voice mistress, Kath Marsden, also corrects as she goes along. But sometimes a publisher will come back and tell us to revert to the original errors because the book has already been published. Obviously, the publisher would be shown up by the discrepancy between a correct recording and an incorrect text. But I put my foot down when one studio instructed me to revert to her birthday falls on June, as opposed to the in June I had recorded. A standoff ensued, lasting more than an hour. Am I not in China as a champion of the English language and of academic standards? Should I read nonsense just so others can save face? They finally relented, though not without attempting a last-ditch trick. Please record your corrected version and our original. Nice try. Of course, they would just erase my corrections.
No way! Though I have approached several Beijing publishers with my own teaching materials built up over the years, the response is either, all our books are written by Chinese authors, not foreigners, or, your materials are wonderful, but we need something more exam-oriented. What can I say? This is my frustration education, disorderly for me to bear. 31. It's not the kind of medical facility we're used to in the West, but it does invoke a sense of the human family. At the TCM clinic I attend near Dongsa Shetiao, we, the ranks of stricken humanity, lie side by side on narrow cots, each in quiet repose and various states of undress, bearing the acupuncture needles or hot cups hastily applied by the harried and constantly interrupted doctor. It's communal medicine in a tiny room, where sheets, needles and glass cups are shared. Though the needles are put in a flame for sterilization between patients, I prefer to buy my own disposable ones at the entrance for the doctor to use. The patients here jockey for position too, reminding me of the pool at Bethesda, where the disabled man could not get to the healing waters in time. Yet there is a strong sense of community here, that we're all in this together. Prick any of us, and we bleed. We learn about each other's symptoms, and treatment strategies become a topic of group discussion. I close my eyes, and return to a deep contemplation of mortality. 32. I first met Cherry at a wine tasting a year ago. A stunning, silken-haired Chinese beauty whose slender bottom I joyfully clasped in long bouts of thrilling lovemaking, pressing her alabaster skin hard against mine. God, how I loved the way she felt, her fragrance, her taste, her touch. Divinity of hell. For she who embraced me so ardently, whether in Chaoyang Park in Beijing, or the coastal town of Xiamen in her home province of Fujian, or even in a Paris hotel room, and on a riverboat on the Seine, she who dissolved in my arms and nestled to my poetry was ever a pillar of ice in between, barely communicating for weeks at a time, even months. Between our passionate but infrequent encounters, she remained distant and aloof, as tantalizingly out of reach as Stella in Charles Dickens' Great Expectations as she drove poor Pip to near insanity with her cold-heartedness. Cherry has many of the traits women complain of in men, non-communicative, non-expressive of feeling except with her body, and exquisitely non-committal. Emotionally unavailable, in the parlance of psychologists, she exemplifies the maddening contradictions that have made China's source of my greatest sorrows and joys. As with my time at CRI, or in my Lushan teaching job, I hung on in the hope that things might get better, but they never did. I asked her once if the sex was just physical for her. Her answer was uncharacteristically emphatic and unequivocal. My heart is in my vagina. I am not like some other girls who just have sex for the sake of it. So I was in her heart as well as her vagina? I cannot fathom this mystery. Cherry also highlights the disproportionate desirability of younger women in China. 
unduly scarce due to China's policy of one child per family, they are accustomed to having the simultaneous attentions of several men. I can't tell you how many times I've been on dates with flirtatious females who finally revealed that they had a boyfriend. Another consequence is that Chinese men exert stifling control and watchfulness over their women. But in this battle of the sexes, men are not the victors. Duane told me recently of a lover who showed up one day with a bruise on her face. Only then did she let him know about the jealous boyfriend who had caused it. And only when Duane resolved to confront said boyfriend did the girl let him know that the aggrieved party was in fact her husband. So lies are told, secrets kept, and jealousy is stoked. And I have noticed how casual the Chinese can be about lying. Not everyone, of course, but many. I recently discussed this with an elderly British Chinese friend in London, whose family had fled the Japanese invasion of China in the 1930s. He rued the loss of morality and courage from his race, attributing it to the Maoist era, when people had to lie and betray their friends and neighbours just to survive. So I wonder what secrets Cherry is keeping. She told me once Western guys don't try as hard in pursuing women as Chinese guys do. Well, whatever game I was meant to play, in the end I could not bear this slow death and dearth of a thousand cuts, the incremental starvation that leached life and love out of me, my essence ebbing away. Cherry savaged my joy, self-confidence and peace of mind, almost tearing me from myself. It was an exasperating, exhausting endeavour, like Sisyphus pushing his rock up the hill, except worse in that this particular rock would frequently roll out of sight. Finally, I had to acknowledge that painful as it was to leave the relationship, it was even more so to stay in it. Perspectives from Peking 8. I was almost in tears. This morning, over a cup of tea at the Xinhua News Agency, Mr. Mi gave me an envelope with 2,000 RMB to help me through to payday next week. This because he knows I have to move out of the hotel tomorrow and don't have the money for alternative accommodation until I get paid. That put a spring in my step. Earlier this week, I lamented to a friend in the UK that the world was refusing to provide the money I need to live, travel and eat. But she divined, Your vulnerability is your strength and point of connection, and that I would love to live in the present and in full presence and receive presence. How true her words proved. Mr. Me has long wanted me to work for Xinhua's television division, ever since I came in to voice a promo and narration for them several years ago. He says my insistence on crafting top-quality copy before doing the recording impressed him at the time. Since then, I have gone on to write and record several narrations for Xinhua documentaries and even given classes in voiceover and performance to some of their anchors and other staff. I would certainly have taken the job if Xinhua had made a competitive offer, but it too has structural inflexibilities built in. Mr. Me doesn't let on about the internal machinations at work there, but I get the sense his efforts and standards are thwarted by higher-ups and that they are struggling in a climate of perpetual reorganisation and uncertainty.
Anyway, by the time I got back to the hotel this evening, I had received some payments owed. The hotel also agreed I could stay another week without a deposit and pay on checkout. Then one of my colleagues negotiated a lower room rate, and I received a voucher to further offset the final cost. Moreover, three other friends, two Chinese and one US, also made offers of financial assistance after Mr. Mee's. What a difference a day makes! Apparently, China is looking after me, and thanks be to God for the kindness of friends. You've been listening to excerpts from my audiobook narration of Dueling the Dragon. The ebook is widely available, the paperback on Amazon, and the audiobook should be out February 2019. I finish each episode by announcing a book giveaway on Amazon. Today you can get my other non-fiction book free wherever ebooks are sold. It's called The Gourmet Gospel: A Spiritual Path to Guilt-Free Eating. And you can go to my website, poetprofit.com, where profit's spelled P-R-O-P-H-E-T, to find all the links for that. Before I go, the fate of the Christmas tree I mentioned several episodes ago. To get you up to speed, I was house-sitting in London over Christmas, and the owners had asked me to discard the Christmas tree that they'd left in the house. And this presented a moral dilemma because I hate to see trees turned into trash. So I got a trowel took the tree to a nearby park, found a secluded spot, and planted it. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy.